You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freight Buyers Club, which, as you've just heard, is produced with the support of Demirco Express Group. I'm Mike King, and you can find this episode and many more on all podcast platforms and on YouTube, along with a bunch of shorter video interviews. You can also find all this content on www.thefreightbuyersclub.com, where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard the phrases friendshoring, allyshoring, China plus one, not least because we've discussed them in great detail many times in this very shire. But as you know, COVID lockdowns in China and the change in geopolitical landscape for global trade mean that many manufacturers and retailers are looking to diversify their sourcing, which of course means big changes for shipping and air cargo planning, and also a big jump into the blue for those who are trying to find new sourcing locations. In the last episode of the Freight Buyers Club, we examined the pros and cons of Mexico as a location for those seeking to move production closer to the US. Well, today we're casting our eyes further afield to India, a land of a billion people and one more than ready to welcome new business. But its infrastructure, transport services and its customs and bureaucracy are a work in progress, shall we say. I'll be discussing this topic with both my guests who come at this from different angles. Later on, I'll be joined on this outsourcing special by Rajesh Srinivasan. India Country Manager at Demirco Express Group, who has worked with a plethora of companies across industries, helping them set up successful businesses and supply chains across the country. Today, he'll be explaining the challenges involved and how to overcome them. But first up, I'm speaking to a longtime analyst of all things shipping and financial. He's also a regular at events and on visual media, and he's an expert on India rather handily. From Singapore, it's the Vice President and Global Head of Shipping Analytics and Research at S&P Global Commodity Insights. Rahul Kapoor, welcome to the Freight Buyers Club podcast. Thanks, Mike, for having me. A pleasure speaking to you today. Rahul, before we turn to India, I'd like to pick your brain on another couple of topics. Prior to joining S&P, you did a lot of equities analysis for the likes of Drury Financial Research Services and Japanese financial giant Nomura. During the COVID pandemic, we saw listed companies up and down the supply chain enjoy huge gains in share value and profits. How would you say markets have adjusted to the new normal for container lines, for 3PLs, for forwarders? So let me put uh, a recap 2020 and 2021 in perspective, right? We've all been covering the industry for a very, very long time. It will not be wrong to say it was extraordinary time for the industry. I think as soon as the pandemic hit, as usual, we start thinking it's a recession, it's going to hurt this industry pretty badly, as has happened in all the past recessions, right? We went to a doomsday scenario, but coming back into 2022 with record profits, it wouldn't be wrong to say that. I, I don't think anybody expected that. The rate levels which we saw, a couple of factors which led to that. I think what was different this time around was, I think the container shipping industry was in a much better position going into this crisis. I think we had seen a huge consolidation wave just preceding the pandemic, we had a lot of these companies merged together because just understand 2014, hands in bankruptcy and all the way going into that, we did see a lot of consolidation and market concentration here as well. 
the key thing which came back was the industry's pricing power. So you need few things. You need strong demand and you need less capacity, right? Demand destruction was short-lived, but you took out a lot of capacity. It was very difficult to get that bat and the recovery was swift. So it all aligned for these carriers in the industry in that sense. And uh, they did pretty well. I think the consumer demand shift, the expectations. So it was as an, you can call it a perfect storm in a sense, but in a good way for the industry. Just adding here, right? You talked about the financial lease. I used to cover many of these companies as an equity analyst. And it's fascinating to see the margins which they were making. You're talking about 50, 60, 70% margins, right? Those are not even the tech companies make that. Container shipping is essentially a low margin business. We do see some spurts of abnormal profitability here and then few quarters, but the industry has mostly struggled to make any decent operating margins over a long period of time. We saw that in 2001 too, after the global financial crisis, multiple bankruptcies and lost billions of dollars. So that's why the freight market was very unusual and was skewed by what we call externalities, right? Cold port lock jams and so on. So overall, a good good time for the industry, having made $300 billion in operating profits, I think, and wiping out decades of losses, strong balance sheets. So it, it, it turned out to be, I would say, unfortunate it was for the mankind, but it did turn out to be pretty good for the industry. Rahul, how do you see the outlook for freight markets and those bottom lines? Certainly, we haven't had much of a peak season for container shipping over this late summer. And the outlook for air cargo in the fourth quarter isn't great either, is it? I would say it wasn't a surprise, right? So I think I was speaking at our TPM conference at 2022. And container shipping still is a levered play on the Western consumer spending, right? Our view was a surging demand would have peaked in first half of 22 and the rates would start normalizing. Supply chain bottlenecks, all of that was expected, started playing out. And it has turned out broadly in line to what we expect. Congestion is all, almost gone. And that's a very big negative factor for the market. We have a lot more active available capacity even before the new ships roll out. So I think the inefficiencies which worked in the favor of the industry are working in reverse manner, all right? So I think it's not only the demand, it's the active capacity which is much higher. So I think the challenge for us is there's no new stimulus, which is coming into the consumer's way. The wallet shares diverting back to experiences, consumer goods. You can buy as many TVs only a few times, right? Or the home improvement goods. So as we see today, I think we saw the last two years, huge inventory buildup. I think people were scared. I think when I'm talking about the retailers, the importers, everyone, when we had shelves locked out, so they were very scared and they expected that, okay, the demand would continue. Significant inventory buildup. And we're still running down inventory. So I don't think the next inventory building cycle is anywhere near, right? We're still talking about two, three years. So in that sense, a demand in our view is likely to be very muted. And at the best, I think you was ex expecting growth to slow down next year as well. So overall, a bleak outlook in terms of demand from our side for the industry next year, even Q4. Is that globally, Rahul, or are you talking about the US specifically there? No, so if I talk about the US, and that's the most important market, right? So we have to understand, uh, we've all, as in all the economists have been proven, I wouldn't say wrong, but uh, certainly everybody's been expecting US to go into a recession for some time now, right? But the US economy has been extremely strong. Labor market has been strong, services, inflation. But the demand for the freight or the container demand has been very tepid. This doesn't gel with what's happening in, or rather has happened in the past. This was primarily because so much of demand was front-loaded in the last two years. And now we are going into next year, our economics teams, I think what they're forecasting is US GDP growth probably will slow down below trend in 2024 to around 1.5% and then determined to rise, right? That is not a good metrics or I would say a good outlook for the container shipping demand. So I'm, I'm hearing some things that people are expecting that we are bottoming out. We are bottoming out, but do not expect a swift recovery in terms of demand. 
next year we actually see a flat lining or very marginal uptick compared to this year. I think what we saw in 2022 is, 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 is unlikely in that sense. So, and again, you, you talked about the peak season, right? It wasn't a surprise at, at all. I think the blank sailings again indicate a weak demand is there to stay. And the amount of blank sailings which you're talking about, again, the golden week came and it was a whimper, a bit of a increase happened. And people are finding, I think, excuses, right? Panama Canal. But if you look at Panama Canal, the container shipping is least affected. These guys are easily going through. So in a sense, you will try and get some of these carriers, will try and get some of these blank sailings and the way to provide a floor on the rates. But for now, I think it's it's a, I would say, a bleak outlook for, for the next uh, quarter and certainly for 2024 as well. So those trans-Pacific spot rates, as you say, they've been quite weak through September as we build up the golden week in the first week of October. Why do you think carriers were so slow about introducing all these blank sailings? It's not easy. As in, that's one thing. If you look at the macro perspective, and I think if you look at the retail sales and all these macro fundamentals in the US market, sends you a signal that the economy is fine. I'm saying retail sales are strong, but those retail sales are running on inventories, right? The import demand, I think, if I'm not wrong, the U.S. imports from Asia, this is in the first seven months is down around 25, 26%. So I think they're looking for hoping that, okay, second half this year could be stronger and they were expecting that. But I think as the market fell through, we started seeing a lot more blank sellings coming back now. Rahul, you mentioned their uh, U.S. import demand and exactly what sort of levels we're at. There's quite an online battle about what the statistics mean at the moment. And we've seen reports that US imports in August were consistent with non-pandemic years in terms of volumes. The National Retail Federation reported steadfast retail sales despite continued inflation and higher interest rates in the US. But others report a muted peak with COVID inventory overhang still a factor for many US importers and demand still tepid. And of course, freight rates are being pretty soft most of the year. And they haven't really shown any sort of signs of recovering in this supposed peak season. In fact, they've been falling large chunks of August. So how do you see the U.S. import market for the rest of this year and into 2024, Rahul? No, no, it's, it's confusing, right? So in a sense, you have to look at it from perspective of the last three years. I won't look at it year on year basis or not even pre-pandemic, because I think that was a distortion which played out over the last two years, right? So U.S. economy, like I said, has been extremely strong. The labor market services inflation. And if you look at the data, this quarter GDP is running at 4%. But if, if you go back pre-pandemic, U.S. GDP at 4% growth would mean a very strong container demand. That's what we linkages were there. I think those linkages have been broken because the dynamics or the internals of that growth is very different. You're talking about services and not manufacturing. You're not talking about consumption demand. So retail sales are strong, but that's again drawing down the inventories, right? A lot of demand was front-loaded. And like I said, our, our expectations of slowing U.S. growth, our economics teams is forecasting now U.S. GDP growth below trend in 2024 to around 1.5%. That's down from 2.5%. Right? So outlook is that since the U.S. demand outlook is weak. So again, and the, and the numbers say that, right? The U.S. imports from Asia down on 25 26% in the first seven months. And in our view, next year is likely to be flatlining. We're not expecting any swift recovery. It will be a marginal uptick because a lot of inventory drawdown should uh, filter through by the end, uh, by the end, this year, early next year, and we could start looking at a slightly better peak season in 2024. And the last thing there is, as in we look at the blank sailings, that certainly indicates the weak demand. The expectations were there, just didn't filter through, and then we're back to those uh, blank sailings. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this really hoping that you're right about a better peak season in 2024. Compared to this year. 
I think I'll add a caveat, <laughs> caveat, right? Compared to this year, right? Yeah. Okay, compared to this year, right? That's, there's <laughs> definitely a caveat. Uh, from an international freight demand standpoint, Rahul, if we if we look into 2024, where is the scope for an upturn in terms of demand when you look at the macroeconomic and geopolitical picture? So I think again, if you look at and this is this is the key part here, and the global economy is in a very different position right now. So everyone used to grow together, and then we used to probably slow down together. We are seeing divergences, right? So economics teams as well, when, when we speak to them as well, 2024 will be another challenge in the year with respect to demand. We're expecting US to slow down. Eurozone will hardly grow. So it's in a sense, basically same as this year. UK is like you'd see a recession and we've downgraded our China forecast now to 4.8%. That's the lowest growth in recent years barring pandemic. So overall, the major economies in that sense, US, Europe, Eurozone and China in that sense, are expected to slow down next year. And the overall GDP growth is slightly lower than 2023, right? But in terms of bright spots, right, I think we are expecting some moderate expansions in Asia-Pacific. This will offset some weakness in Europe and the Americas. The growth prospects in some emerging markets, generally more positive. I think India, ASEAN, Southeast Asia, they could outperform. But these are not the major drivers for the freight demand. So in a sense, I think, in a sense, I don't want to sound too pessimistic. What I want me to say is, expectations for 24 need to be dialed down because we're getting into economic slowdown period ahead. It was expected to happen this year. It hasn't, primarily because the US has been extremely strong. And if you see the Fed raising, uh, not raising interest rates yesterday, but saying that the rates will stay higher for longer, that start hitting your consumer demand. So rates higher for longer is not that much good for the consumption part as well. So the bright spots in that sense on the economic side is certainly India, ASEAN, Southeast Asia, but those are not directly impactful on the freight demand, right? So overall freight demand very tepid, probably grow slightly lesser than the global GDP growth compared to growing higher multiples of global GDP growth as we used to have. As you mentioned there, Rahul, India at the moment is not a major driver of international freight demand, but in a recent paper from S&P, you and your co-author Chris Rogers, head of supply chain research at S&P, you noted that the current Indian government headed by Prime Minister Narendra Modi is seeking to raise manufacturing as a share of the economy from 17.7% to 25% of GDP by 2025. It's an ambitious target, but is it a viable target in your view? Can India really rival China and other places like Southeast Asia or, or even Mexico, which we featured on the last episode of the Freight Buyers Club podcast? Can it really rival those places, a major global center for manufacturing in the future and therefore a, a major generator of Freight demand as well. Yeah, yeah, I think this is a very interesting topic, Mike. There's a saying by a very well-known investor and writer that India consistently disappoints the optimist and the pessimist, right? It has been certainly true in the past, but I think things are finally looking up and there's more optimism. And there, there's a ground for optimism. So look forward journal, India, uh, which was published, right? So the title was India's Moment. This comes out of S&P Global where we look at the thematic themes over the next few years. So this covered very extensively what's happening within in the labor market, economy. I did the piece together with my colleague Chris Rogers on the India's manufacturing push and how can India achieve it? So these are not the recommendations. This is what our view is as in how can India achieve this, right? So I'll highlight a few things. You have to understand that the supply chain diversification started much before the pandemic. I think there was a tug of war between just in time or whether you need resiliencies. So all this diversification now, and, and again, before making these arguments, I'll add a caveat is we're not saying India replacing China. We're talking about market share gains, which at the loss of China, right? So you'll carry more inventory. 
the just in time that works, but you'll have more demand or rather procurement centers now, right? And India stands to benefit from that. So that's the massive opportunity to increase its share of global manufacturing exports. India is known as a services exports economy, not that big on the global manufacturing exports, much lower share, but that's what we are hoping. Or rather, that's what we're saying that our view is the corporate manufacturing giants, which are looking for what we call the alternative production sourcing destinations, which includes the countries you mentioned as well, from Mexico to other parts of the world as well. We've seen Vietnam do very well over the last few years to accelerate what we call the supply chain diversification. So it's finally coming home in that sense. The supply chain diversification is becoming a very important topic. Again, what you saw because of, I think the pandemic accelerated it a bit, I would say, because of the geopolitics as well, right? But I think that's something which plays in. Just a few more things here, right? Because I want to go deeper into this, but I think India should benefit from these positive tailwinds. Uh, we've seen in the last few years, uh, the current policy framework has changed. There's a more focus on domestic and export logistics framework. Then that helps. And these are projects which are going underway and we'll talk more about that. But that's certainly helpful. And that's why we think India stands to benefit out of that. Rahul, attracting more foreign investment is clearly on the agenda for the Modi administration, which has got this brand, Making India Make for the World, which the idea is to encourage investment in manufacturing, especially through production-linked incentive schemes, PLI schemes. Can you explain what these schemes are and how, say, a U.S. manufacturer might access them? Sure, sure. I think, and it's, it's been widely, widely advertised. So the PLI as a production-linked incentive or PLI, as it's known, is the scheme of Government of India, which is essentially an incentive scheme. So I think it, it gives incentives on incremental sales from products manufactured in domestic units. But the whole idea behind this or the whole vision behind that was aimed at boosting the manufacturing sector. It started as a means of import substitution and reduce imports. So India used to do billions of dollars of imports for telecom equipment. They started, they put duties on that and they started giving incentives for that to be made in India, made for India as well as exports, right? So India has become one of the biggest uh, producers of that. And just remember that India has a natural domestic demand which serves these, right? So huge domestic market as well. So you're for making in India as well as making for the world. We saw that very attractively or other work very well for the mobile phones, for the smartphones. The government has introduced several of these for auto components. You have automobile, telecom goods. The latest one is on the electronics. So it's IT, hardware, laptops. And if I remember correctly, I think there's close to 58 companies that recently applied. Most global Indian players, you have HP, Lenovo, Dell. So all these companies are coming in. You're making in India, make for India. You're talking about exports. Everything is possible within the framework for the next few years. I think one of the key important things to highlight there, right? There's always debate about this in a sense, whether it's successful or not. I think in the initial years, we've started seeing some success on the smartphones. Let's see over the next few years how it works. But again, highlighting this is, and I want to, the, the reports which we had from the top Taiwanese laptop maker Asus, which is making its, rather moving its key supplier from China to India. So what we're seeing is they've announced the plans benefiting basically from the PLI and setting up a primary manufacturing hub in India. So that's, that's in Chennai. So we've started seeing some of this, and this makes us believe that over the next few years, you'll see a lot more of these coming out of India, and that's serving the export markets. That's in a sense the PLI. It's essentially make for India and then also export to India. And, and for the producers or rather for the suppliers, it gives them an opportunity to set up a complementary factory in this part of the world and diversify their sourcing as well as production facilities. Just to put some numbers on this, India's exports of telecoms equipment, including smartphones, reached. $11.8 billion in the 12 months to March 31st this year. 
according to data from S&P Global Market Intelligence and Panjiva. Leading the way was Samsung Electronics. They accounted for 35% of those exports. Contract manufacturers, Wistron and Foxconn were next with 17% each. What is India getting right there, Rahul? I think it's, it started from these ones. So we have to understand that India is not going to replace everything. China has, or rather the North Asian export powerhouses have all these established over the last 20 years. India is taking steps over the last few years. Right, so we'll start seeing in the high-end sector first, and we're not looking at the low-end manufacturing for now. So it's essentially it would be electronics, high-end components, and so on. It could be very well. Automobile is a big one. I think you just heard that Tesla will be taking around $2 billion auto components as per the government estimates. Some of those is where we'll start playing this, which essentially is chipping away some of the share that China has in the global manufacturing exports. I just want to look at some of the challenges that people face with India as well. And obviously one of those is logistics. I want to cite a recent Apple sustainability advert here, if I may, because in it, it's executives, it's quite a clever sketch. They end up explaining to Mother Nature how they're cutting carbon from products. And one of the examples that they throw out is that Apple is using shipping for most of its needs instead of air cargo as much as it possibly can. And although I'm sure they always did. But my point relating to India is Indian seaports. And tied to this is, is India's ability to attract more direct container line services rather than using hubs such as Singapore. So India's ports, the challenge is that in terms of helping manufacturers achieve sustainability goals and keep costs competitive, they're not exactly world-class, are they? Are you expecting progress there? No, I wouldn't agree totally that completely because I think they're smaller in capacity, but they're certainly efficient. So I think the Jawaharlal Nehru Port Authority, the JNPT, right? I think India's biggest state-run container port had its turnaround time for container ships, which was among the best cited by the World Bank. So they're smaller, but getting efficient. So that's important. And second thing is, I think, again, because reading the tea leaves, right? So India is also amongst the very few countries globally which are building new greenfield ports. In a sense, in terms of establishment, we recently heard about DP World. It's investing almost half a billion dollars, developing a mega container terminal in India. There are others as well. So this is what we take back is when you start seeing some of these infrastructure investments, and this is all part of what we call the National Infrastructure Pipeline, and it complements other initiatives from the government of India. There's this PM Gati Shakti Master Plan, National Logistics Policy, but which weren't there, let's say, until a few years back. So effectively, what we are saying is things are moving on the ground, and there's an opportunity for India to take a much larger share of what we call China plus one. So market share gains in the years to come, right? It's their opportunity. If they act through it, uh, I think they stand to benefit. But like you said, there's still some skepticism and rightly so. I'll just give some numbers again for our listeners in terms of logistics competitiveness. In the World Bank's Logistics Performance Index released this year, India ranked 38th out of 139 countries. It has significantly improved its score in some areas, but cost competitiveness in logistics is pretty critical for those supply chains. And logistics costs in India are currently around 14 to 18% of uh, GDP. Now, the government's looking to lower those costs to around about 10%, which is in line with other major exporters. But Rahul, in your view, where is the short-term low-hanging fruit in terms of improving this overall logistics performance? And, and where are the other challenges? What else can be done? Is it, is it bureaucracy? Is it customs? I think all of those are important, but they do have uh, digitization, so I'm not sure but not talking about logistics, but India is one of the most highly digitized country now. When I say that in terms of the payments, if you see cashless payments and so on, and they're using all that tech stack, which is being built at the national level, right? Through the policy framework for logistics as well. 
So those will improve further with time. Like you said, a key variable affecting India's manufacturing potential is the cost competitiveness in logistics. That's a given. That's the most important one. You outlined those numbers as well. But I think if you look at some of these numbers, which we have looked at in our forecast as well, working with our with partners, Crystal, we've seen improving road and rail connectivity. That's very important. And that's a noticeable acceleration in national highway building. I think we're expecting construction to reach around 33 kilometers per day in fiscal year 24. And that's almost double, which was achieved from 17 kilometers per day in 2016. The share of containers being shipped by rail, that's also rising, increasing to around 33% by 2030. So all these cuts your logistic costs and basically is a boost to manufacturing as well as exports. So we're closely tracking this, right? So some of these things, I think, when we started, we were a bit pessimist. I think from this one, we're getting some hope in a sense that, and that's why we call it India's moment, right? But like I said, these all have to be delivered and we're asking for a much more accelerated pace here for India to uh, certainly succeed in terms of what we see it as opportunity for them. And are you expecting more retailers and producers to bet or big on India? I think our views as in, uh, from our S&P Global View, I think uh, it, it is likely to be the fastest growing economy for the next several years. Large economy, that's our house view as well. Average growth of 6, 6.5% for the next decade. Strong per capita consumption, strong domestic demand. All these are probably a recipe for it to use some of this invest that money into improving its logistics framework, all the policies which are coming in. So we do expect, and like I said, the supply chain diversification is not in the name itself, right? As in not just the name, it's not a fad anymore. It's, it's actually happening. We're starting seeing that and it'll continue to accelerate. Yes. Rahul, if I could just finish on shipping, are we going to see a whole load of new direct container line services linking India with the rest of the world, particularly those key import economies in Europe? and in the US in the future into these new terminals that you're talking about? Is that what you're expecting to happen? We will, yeah. I think MSC started with some. I think we'll start seeing some of that as well. The new ports coming in. We'll start seeing it. But not necessarily all, everybody has to call there, right? Because if we look at the numbers, so India is placing bets on the high-end exports as well. I think machinery, that's a big one. So they're focusing on machinery exports, electronics and so on, right? So I'm not expecting a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, the Christmas goods to be built here. I think they're placing their bets on certain markets where there's a big bang for the buck. So it's not a mass scale movement out of North Asia into India, right? But that would be a key difference. But certainly, we're expecting market share gains every year. Next up, we'll be looking at some of the logistics and production setup challenges manufacturers face in India when I talk to Rajesh Srinivasan, India Country Manager at Dimeco Express Group. But for now, Rahul Kapoor, Vice President and Global Head of Shipping Analytics and Research at S&P Global Commodity Insights. That's quite a mouthful. Thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure to be here. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with Demerco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. Demerco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for trans-Pacific lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, Demerco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. Welcome back to the Freight Buyers Club. And with no further ado, let's proceed to look in more detail at some of the challenges and opportunities available to those seeking out new sourcing options in India. My next guest is something of an expert on both. It's Demerco Express Group's India Country Manager, 
Rajesh Srinivasan, welcome to the Freight Buyers Club. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Quite an honor to be here. Rajesh, you guys at Demerco have produced a rather excellent and timely report on manufacturing in India, which essentially is a, is a practical guide to navigating the challenges for those who are looking to open new manufacturing sites in India. So I guess the obvious lead question is, how would you define those challenges or risks? And then we'll move on to solutions a bit later. Sure. So I just categorized the approach into three parts, basically. So number one will be with regard to the various schemes the government is offering for promoting the manufacturing in India for both import and export, right? And second, moving on to the other area will be the complex customs procedure and uh, the related duty structure, which is quite tied up to the schemes which the government is floating around. And third will be the infrastructure challenges, which the companies try to set up the operation in India, which they encounter. So these are the three major components we classify as a challenges, which when they try to open up the operations in India. And presumably the risks of trying to overcome those challenges, government policy, customs, infrastructure, are they greater for smaller companies looking to source from India than maybe for large corporations? That's right. Relatively, the SME or the small size company or the mid-sized companies, they face uh, quite a bit of challenges when it comes to understanding the customs rules and procedure because they have the product getting sourced by various suppliers all around the globe wherein they primarily they will be operating for in suppliers, supplier rather, they will be supplying to the contract manufacturers. And they do have a very stiff delivery obligations and contractual agreements. So for them, the lead time matters a lot. And also providing them the right guidance on the duty structure for a faster turnaround of the goods to the factory or the production line, which will be very critical for them to control their cost. Thanks for that, Rajesh. So if I understand SMEs, obviously there's higher risk for those types of companies, but what's the positives for companies looking at India? Maybe if we think of a larger SME company in the US, maybe wants less exposure to China, they might have options in Southeast Asia or the Americas. Why should they take on these challenges that you've outlined there? What does India offer that isn't available elsewhere? I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's an, quite a valid comparison. Right. So I classify it into three parts, primarily in the population. That's one of the major criteria for the India in terms of the production support, what they can really offer. And number two will be with regard to the geography. India has a huge land bank, which most of the Southeast Asia countries are quite smaller for them to really offer. And third will be the infrastructure wherein the government in last 10 years have developed large industrial zones, which is connected to the industrial highway. So that's the three major areas which we see as a kind of a potential option which they should consider for investing in India. Just to give a comparison on the population, right, uh, on the 1.43 billion of the total population in India, we have the Angusture population, which is of 50% of the population of the 1.4 billion, is around the age category of 25 years. And wherein the 65% of the total of 1.42 billion, we have around the age category of 35. So that gives a kind of a comparison wherein the supply of consistent and regular skilled and semi-skilled labor force or the workforce can be given to the manufacturers who want to set up in India. 
And second, moving on will be the geography. So India has a huge coastline, which is close to 7,000 plus kilometers, which is having close to 13 operating container ports and uh, which have uh, connections around the world, including Southeast Asia, to the Europe, to the US. And we do have 34 international airports. However, 11 airports are operating the international freighters and the passenger operations. So the government have an additional of three new airports to be get built and get operational from 2024 onwards or 25 rather. So we see a, a major infrastructure revamp, which is more on the migrational stage, which I call it. I think in next another five years, you can see a full-fledged kind of an infrastructure to support the government policy and the labor force with the skilled and semi-skilled will be able to comprehend the success of the production in India. And are there particularly strong locations within India for export-oriented companies if they were looking at their different options, either maybe due to the location of ports or airports or maybe due to the different state policies? Yeah, precisely, because the government still, it's uh, getting the revamp, the entire infrastructure for the last 10 years. So they have identified the industrial corridor for electronics, say per se as an example, between Bangalore to Chennai, that's an, an area of close to 300 plus kilometers, wherein close to 130 kilometers of the entire highway is having an industrial connection on the both the sides of the roads, right? And it is connecting to the both the airport in Chennai and Bangalore, and it's also connecting to the seaport, which is a major terminals in Chennai. So that way, the government is connecting the industrial hub with the port and the airport for a faster movement and the clearance of the goods. And moving on to the next zone will be between Mumbai and Delhi. That's going to be the major zone wherein the government is promoting an dedicated freight corridor where you would see an dedicated freight trains running between these two major hubs. And along the freight corridor, you will see the industrial zones are getting developed and already operational. In addition, we have the National Capitalist Region, which is around Delhi. You do have then zone between Delhi and Noida. It's also created as an electronic zone. So in this entire area of between Bangalore and Chennai and between Delhi and Mumbai and between Delhi and Noida, we are going to have three additional new international airport getting constructed and it will get fully operational by latest 2025. So that way, the infrastructure development also will support the initiatives what the government is floating. So these are the three areas which we see the government is pushing towards the production and the operations to facilitate the faster movements of the goods. Are there any other initiatives or schemes from the government of Prime Minister Modi that you can tell us about that would be helping companies from abroad who want to set up in India? Correct. So if you look back way back, say, let's say by 10 years back, the investor who is coming into India have to go to minimum eight to 10 departments to set up their operations in India. So one of the initiatives that Prime Minister Modi is pushing towards the entire working government structure in India is to have a single window permission or a single window clearance for all the foreign investors, wherein they will reduce the time and the hassle. They don't need to go to different departments. That's one of the areas the government is pushing towards. And by and large, the number of departmental controls have reduced more than 60 to 70 percent now. So the foreign investor now needs to go to three departments primarily to get in their entire clearances for operating out in India. So that way, the ease of doing business has tremendously improved. 
and uh, we can foresee a lot of investors are moving towards because one area which they see India is like the one of the challenges which they face is the different government bodies who comes in in different stages and asking for permissions or the certifications. I think in another years or two years time, the government will simplify that into a dedicated desk wherein the investors can just approach to one desk who will operate internally for getting in the clearances. So there's some progress on on joining up regulations between state and, and federal levels and in terms of bringing all this logistics together, even on a tax level. Is this all getting made to work? Is this all navigable for an outsider? That's true because uh, that's more now promising. The reason is now the tax structure in India is very clearly drawn wherein the federal or the central government controls the direct and the indirect taxes for understanding anything to do with your personal tax or your corporate tax or your customs duties and payments and your GST payments comes under the central government who in then will distribute the same to the state for operating their operations on the state level. Where the states have to just look after for the investors for providing them the land and also the water and the electricity. So the cohesiveness has come in place where the states are also in align with the federal government or the central government initiative to attract investors so that their employment ratio also goes up and the unemployment in the states and the dependency on the state for generating revenue will be a larger quotient for them going down probably in a year's or two years time. So already the states of Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, and of course Telangana, and also for Uttar Pradesh, they have seen a tremendous investors coming in and setting up factory. A lot of job opportunities of direct and indirect got created. So already people are witnessing the benefits of the investors, the foreign investors setting up factories in India. So that's one of the reasons the economy also will be growing in another two or three years' time in a larger way. Modern supply chains, Rajesh, they're very, very complex, as you know, often involving multiple different components sourced or produced from many different countries before final assembly. How at Demerco are you helping companies navigate India's fairly notoriously complex customs and compliance rules? I mean, what sort of things do people need to know about or consider? I'll just take you back to 2020, right? When the pandemic hit India or around the world also gone through that. With the global approach of the China plus one coming in place for dependency or the reduction of the dependency on China, the India government also scaled up various initiatives on the procedure simplification, right? So now currently in the, in the Indian customs, 85% of the entire process has become now, it's faceless, rather we call that more of EDI, wherein the manual intervention for any of the physical verification has reduced to a larger quantum now. So this has contributed to the faster customs clearances and managing a faster lead time. So the average lead time, which used to be around 10 to 12 days way back in 2020, now currently we are looking at three to five days for delivery from the date of landing, either it's via air or sea, where air is much faster now, wherein it's, it's less than three days where the cargoes are getting delivered to the factories. In certain cases where companies who operate under special teams, they just get the cargo by 24 hours from their time of landing. So faster to the clearance and faster to the market is one of the approach, the simplification the government have done now. So we foresee that further simplification, probably in another two or three years time, wherein we see that the customers do a self-declaration of their inbounds, wherein the goods will be cleared on their benefit 
much for master del faster deliveries into their locations. Thanks, Rajesh. Now, mobile phones and electronic equipment suppliers have been first movers, really, in setting up in India. What other sectors do you think would benefit from producing there? Is it, have you identified particular segments? Yeah, since Dimaco is engaged in terms of not only just providing the international logistics or the custom brokerage, we are also engaged in the areas of legal consultancy also, wherein we identify and give the customers the right duty structure functioning for their products and also minimizing their overall exposure in terms of their working capital. So that way we provide them the solution of the products which they want to get through much faster to India. Now, going back to the question of what are the other industries we serve in addition to our electronics or our internet products or it's going to be the other mobile products. We do offer, the government has taken up the initiative for promoting the IT hardware system, which is the latest scheme put in by Bodhi government by August 2023 onwards. That one area which we foresee another uh, surge of investors coming in for setting up the laptop manufacturings in India. And second industry will be the electric vehicles, the EV sector, where the government is promoting the electric vehicle manufacturing in India. So that's one of the areas the government is looking at, not only for an export market out of India, but also for the domestic selling in India, because a lot of adaptation is done in the EV sector in India, promoted by the Indian government now. Finally, Rajesh, are there any shortcuts that might enable companies to invest in India without maybe committing loads of money and hiring loads of staff and, and navigating all of these challenges that you've outlined? Are there any options so that they can dip their toes to test the water, so to say? Yeah, we do have a lot of case studies wherein we help the SME and the mid-sized companies who came to India to test their market conditions and how they want to operate as an opportunity. So we do have a solution through the free trade warehousing zone and also through the special economic zone operation, wherein we support them to set up the companies in India through our legal consultancy operations. In addition, we do offer them the solutions of setting up an FTWZ operations through our dedicated units in Mumbai, Chennai, Delhi, and of course, in future in Bangalore and Hyderabad. So in this option, they can operate a non-legal entity in India, wherein you don't have any tax commitments or a payment of any corporate tax in India, you can bring in your cargo, keep your products in India in the FTWZ, which is an foreign trade warehousing zone, which is a non-Indian territory, which is being notified by the government, wherein you can keep it and test the market and probably trade into the market. And also once you are confident about trading in India, you can move into your own production line. So in Dimaco, we provide this particular term as called the scalable business model wherein you come, test the market with the pre-trade warehousing zones, and then start trading from the pre-trade warehousing zone by setting up your own operations or supplying to your OEM or your customers. And later on, you can set up your bonded manufacturing or your own manufacturing uh, factories in India. So that way you will have an experience of the Indian government operations. And parallelly, you can understand the systems and processes how it functions. So this one of the success formulas or rather the success pattern which we see by the most of the multinationals who is on the SME or the mid-sized companies who come and test the Indian market and later on they put up their own factories in India. Rajesh Srinivasan, India Country Manager at Dimeco Express Group. Thanks very much for joining me today on the Freight Buyers Club. 
Thank you, Mike. Appreciate for inviting. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the Demerco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.